This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Right now, we're going to study God's Word together in the book of Colossians. And so if you brought your Bible, please open it to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 is where we will be the first time that I remember sort of taking a good long look at Colossians 3 was in college. I was in a Bible study group, and someone asked what our favorite chapters of Scripture were. And I don't remember what I said at the time. Now, if you're curious, I would say Romans 8. But someone said Colossians 3. So I turned there, and while everybody else was sharing, I just started reading, and I, was, I remember being mesmerized by this chapter, and I, I kind of doubt I paid much attention to the rest of the Bible study, because here is a chapter of Scripture that is at once intensely practical, but is built on something that is highly theological. Everything's here. There's a little bit of everything in Colossians So it has instruction for us, instruction, practical instruction for living in the world, but it also has and teaches us about who God is and what relationship with like him, not just his life, but where that comes from. And so if you wonder, well, how how am I supposed to, as a Christian, go to work or to school, or how do I go out to eat at restaurants? What happens when I get married or I, I, I become a parent? How do I buy a house or change jobs? Or what, what, what is it like to join a church? Well, that's, that's all here. But Colossians chapter 3 doesn't just say, do this, do this. It says, because you have been raised with Christ, you're now a different sort of person than you were before. And you need to know everything about what that means. Colossians 3 doesn't say just do this, do that, because it will please God, it'll make him favorable toward you. It says do these things, do all things, because God has forgiven you. You were in peril and he rescued you. You've been raised to new life. So now here's how you live like that's a real thing. Because it is. Prior to new life in Christ, it's it's even understandable that you would chase after what the writer here calls what is earthly. We live that way because that's who we used to be, but not anymore. In Christ, you need to hear this part. God has made you more than that. You're a new creation in Christ. He's raised you up, and in doing that, he's given you a new hope, a new mindset, and the very identity that you used to be known with and for has been changed to something else entirely. Chapter 1 of this letter says that you were once alienated and hostile to God. Paul, the writer here, wrote another letter to the Ephesians, and in Ephesians 2, it says that, that our sin, my sin, your sin, 
our sin made us objects that deserved wrath. But now, after being raised with Christ, Colossians 3 says we're no longer known as objects of wrath. We're called holy and beloved. And that's just, that's not just a gift. It's an identity shift of the highest order. There's no greater news in all the universe than what's being laid out for us in this magnificent chapter. So we're going to pick it up at verse 12. We just work three verses this morning. But let's read there. Hope you'll follow along as I read this. Colossians 3 Verse 12, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. A few times prior to this, in in chapter 2, once there, another time in just a few verses before this, 3 verse 9, it says, put off the old self. But in 3, 5, it says it in a much more specific way than just to put off. There, 3, 5, it says, Put to death the old self. We talked about this last week. We said that, that the word there is historically has been mortify sin. Put it to death. Be disgusted by it. Go to war against your sin. And don't be naive. If you give sin a little opening in your life, in your heart, in your mind, believing that you can have just a little bit, but you can control it. You can restrict it to just a part of your life. You'll be able to, thinking that you'll be able to keep it in check. You can no more do that than you can take a few drops of food coloring, put them in a bowl full of water, and think that you're only going to color some of the water in the bowl. Allowing sin into your heart, into your mind, will affect all of your heart and all of your mind. We fight sin in two primary ways. First, we have to call sin what it is. Folks, sin is not whoops. It's not, you know, it's really not a big deal. And sin is not well, at least I'm not as bad as find somebody who's a little bit worse than you are so you can feel better that you're not quite as bad off as they are. You can't vindicate yourself by finding the lowest common denominator around and comparing yourself to that person. Romans says that the wages of sin is death. You won't do yourself, or anybody else for that matter, any favors by just minimizing that. 
If you're going to wage war, you have to identify your enemy. The second way we fight sin is by setting our minds and chasing after something better. If all we do is make a list of what's bad and wrong, but in doing that, we, we have no vision, we have no view for what it means to be forgiven through Christ, to be raised with Christ, to have a life of abiding in Christ, then you'll quickly lose the will to fight. Listen, a person will give everything they are to fight for what they believe in if they can see it. But if it's just fighting because they've they've been told what they should fight for, pretty soon it won't matter enough. So there's a twofold vision that that these verses give us for mortifying sin and then putting on the new self. The first part of our vision comes in verse 12. It says that you and I, if we're in Christ, are God's chosen ones. Holy and called beloved. The second part of that that all-encompassing vision is that we've been forgiven by God. That's the the motivation, the the stimulation for the new self. So if you're in this room, if you're watching, and you were a Christian, you were once hostile to God, not just indifferent. Your sin deserved his wrath, but he has saved you. He didn't do that because he was impressed with you or because you did enough to make him think maybe you weren't so bad after all. He saved you because it glorifies his name to choose you and to make you holy and you need to know that you didn't do those things yourself. The holiness you now have comes from Christ. He was holy but treated as a sinner so you, a sinner, can be treated by God as holy. And you are holy now. Holiness for you if you are in Christ, that's not some future promise. There's holiness to come to be sure more and more, but you're already made holy because you're already in Christ. The work on the cross is finished. And now you're beloved. If you've come in here and you've beat yourself up and you've come in here and you're thinking, I just need some spiritual water to drink, here it is. God doesn't love some future version of you that one day he'll make holy, that one day if you can just get a little bit better, then he'll love you. If you're in Christ... Because God loves Christ and he sees you through Christ, God loves you right now. Right now. Not some future kind of version of you. This one. And again, not because he's obligated to love you. Because he chooses to. What's better from your spouse saying, why do you love me? Well, I promised to love you 20-something years ago when we got married and... I don't break promises. 
or to say, I love you because I treasure you. I love you because I delight in you. I love you because to love you makes me, my heart glad. God loves you because it makes his heart glad to love you, not because he promised to and now he's kind of stuck with that. And all of this here in Colossians chapter 3 starts with his forgiveness. God forgives, God saves, so now we can forgive and bless others as well. Have you ever thought about how much space the Bible devotes to instructing us in how we are to be with other people toward one another. If you just thought about this, this is something that I don't think most non-Christians realize, and, and even many Christians need to have this pointed out to them. Most of what the Bible says about our character and about our work is not about some sort of inner kind of monastic spirituality where it's just us and God. Most of the instructions that the Bible gives to Christians are for us to live out among and with other people. Let's look at this. Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You really see it here. Bearing with one another. If you have complaints against each other, you'll have complaints against other people. You have plenty of chances to bear with other people. Uh, I do a lot, a lot of weddings in, in premarital counseling. And when I talk to couples who are about to get married about healthy conflict, I often start by saying, hey, if you have a fight, and then I catch myself and saying, what, what do you mean if you have a fight? When you have fights. If you've been married for 48 hours, you know that you have fights with your spouse. This is all about being with other people. This isn't getting away with God. That's good. Get away with God, absolutely. But your spiritual life will be primarily, almost always, lived out among others. The tie that binds all these together is they're done with other people. In the new self, we're not supposed to, to take some mystical vow where we just go inside for worship. We worship Christ. We live out the new self. We put on the new self around other people. Now that you've been saved, now that we've seen the devastating consequences of our sin, we, the grace of God has become real to us, we should be zealous to be around others in the grace of God and to bless them with that same grace. All of these are that way. Again, look, look, put on compassionate hearts. Jesus was the most compassionate man to ever live. He was regularly around crowds. And you know what happened when he was around a crowd? The Bible often says that his heart would break for people. He saw seas of lost people. He healed people. He taught people. But the greatest thing that Christ did for those who were right in front of him and the greatest thing that Christ did for you is he took compassion on you. Where you were lost and broken and aimless and headed for destruction, his heart was moved toward you. And he 
gave you grace. That's what carried him to the cross. He was there because it was the only way to give people what they really need. That's the chance to trade death for life. These next four, look at, these, look at these, these things that we're called to. They all kind of go together. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. If you go and, and read a list of what kind of people are called to lead and serve in positions of leadership in the church, those lists aren't dominated. Those lists aren't full of, again, kind of inner qualities. They're dominated by qualities of temperament. They're dominated by things of how people are with other people. Men who are called to eldership and men and women who are called to to serve the church as deacons should only be put in those positions if God has worked on their character. Absolutely worked in their heart. That's assumed. But character, interactions, how they treat others. If you're not kind and, and humble, this one's here too, folks. If you're not patient if you're not growing in patience, then we've really, we really need to talk about whether you've actually put off the old self. Sometimes when people hear this, they think that they're being asked to become pushovers. It doesn't have to be like that. Even in, in a world hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the work of the church, you can contend strongly for the faith without being proud or quick-tempered. It's possible to be steadfast in faith and kind and gentle at the same time because that's what Jesus was. He never compromised the word of God or faith or conviction, but he was always gentle. So you can have bold faith while being humble. I'm concerned about this. I gather most of us are as well. If not, you should be. I'm on some social media, and and so I'm going to talk about that because I think it's worst there. Most of us would never say the kinds of things that we're, for some reason, willing to say online if people were standing right in front of us. I see interaction online, and, I th- and one of my first thoughts is, this, is ne- this would never happen if these people were together. And, and my concern is that there seems to be a drawing of dividing lines in a kind of posture that, that some people have, and they even claim it's for the name of Christ, where they've almost made it a badge of honor to be in your face. So what happens then is they're writing, the the things that they post, the way they interact with people takes on a biting tone. Disagreement sort of becomes attack. Counter-offensives become more and more common. There's sarcasm, lots of it. Quick quips, arrogance. I even see people calling into question the allegiance of faithful Christians who don't agree on secondary matters. If you're on social media, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
Even if you're not on there, I'm, I'm pretty sure you know that this happens a lot. Just compare that with what you see here. Compassionate hearts, humility, kindness, meekness. I see very little meekness, especially in that space. Patience. By all means, be a warrior against your sin, but but don't appoint yourself a warrior against your brothers and sisters in Christ from behind your keyboard or, or, or on an app. The person you're talking to in Christ is also holy, and they're beloved by God. God's forgiven you, and so let's look for something better than that kind of thing. And your reaction might be, well, well, that sounds good, but what about when people are wrong? What about when they need to be told that they're wrong? Let's start here. They don't always need to be told that they're wrong. We're wrong about a lot of things. It's okay. It works better if we just kind of let a lot of them go. What about when they need to be confronted? To that, I'd say, you're right. Sometimes people need to be confronted. But you have to ask, are you truly the person that God has put in their life to do this? And you will know that if you're willing to do it and you're approaching it this way. If you're approaching somebody through anger and bitterness, and if your point is to make sure they know they're wrong and you're right, I think it's pretty safe to say you're not the person that God has put in their life to do this work. But if you love them, and you're ready to be gentle and kind, and if you have humbled yourself, if you have endured with patience, then maybe you just are. I'd also ask this, are you willing to apply the same standards to yourself that you are applying to somebody else? Jesus confronted people in their sin, and he pointed out where people were wrong, but he always did that with compassion. He never did it to make himself feel superior to them, not once. So even where it leads to hard conversations, even where we might have to do that. And in the church, sometimes we do. We can ask, am I here to bless this person? Am I here to unite them more and to graft them more into Christ and into the body of Christ? Or am I here for some other more selfish, petty reason? Even when it confronts, the gospel softens and unites and it blesses. And Paul says that we should bear with one another. That doesn't just mean to, to tolerate one another. Bearing means to embrace one another. There are people who frustrate me and annoy me. And you know what? I'm sure that some people in this room are frustrated by me and annoyed by me. You know what? We're still called to bear with one another. The next few words are, are actually defi- are pretty helpful in defining that. Uh, I, I like the quick exchange of this that comes next. If you have something, look at what it just says here. If you have something, 
a complaint against another, do what? Go to them. Make sure that they know that they are wrong. Grind it into them. No, that, that's not what it says. You know, make, make sure that they, you've kind of announced you're wrong and ceremoniously shown your grace by letting, you, letting them know that you've forgiven them. Does it say that? No. It says if you have a complaint against another, forgive. Here's something remarkable for our day and age. You can forgive somebody and you can bless somebody and they don't even ever have to know it. You can just have something against somebody but love them and know that they probably didn't mean to offend you and you can just move on. You can just deal with that with God and yourself in your heart. And the next time you see somebody Instead of letting them know that you've had division, but you've been the bigger person for giving them, you can just wave and say hi and ask how they're doing. And you can genuinely mean it. And it will be good. And God will work with you through that. And you can do that because God has done it for you. It's absolutely true that, that if we repent of sin, we're going to be saved by the grace of God. But do you think for one second that you have confessed to God all the ways in your life that you have sinned against him? Do you think you've taken, do you, do you think you've, you've confessed to God all the ways that you've defied him? Of course not. He's forgiven you of so much that you have never taken the time to confess to him. You do so many things that have, would separate yourself and God just simply overlooks them in Christ. He just moves on from them. His complaints about them that he will never address with you. He just loves you. He calls you beloved. He's just going to let him go. The Lord has done this for us, and according to verse 13, that, that's our model for other people. Galatians 6 1 is so helpful here. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you, be too temp you too be tempted. Bear with one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So the law of Christ does not have to make us pushovers. We're serious about holiness, and we're serious about living together under the grace of God. So from time to time, there will be issues that need to be confronted. That will happen. But those who are mature in faith will have learned and will know from experience that to reach someone's heart, the way we soften hearts in the way that God does to get people to confess their sin to live a truly changed life in repentance is not to confront somebody with anger and judgmentalism it's to, to go gently because that's the way that God goes God doesn't confront you angrily he confronts you gently in Christ he says come to me if you're weak you're weak I'm weak and he says I'm going to give you rest I'm not going to give you a hard time I give you rest God is so gentle with us. Chances are God is more gentle with you than you've ever been with another person. The next sentence of treating somebody with gentleness actually says, keep watch on yourselves. And the reason it says that is it's very possible to be far more of a problem when confronting somebody else's offenses than whatever led to that, whatever happened in the first place. Have you ever had this experience? Have you ever been offended by somebody? But in your heart, 
in your, sorry, in your hurt, whether by your anger or your defensiveness, your pride was wounded. And so what you end up doing is hurting somebody else more, far more than you were hurt in the first place. Have you ever done that? I have. The spiritually mature and the godly bring more grace because God brings more grace. The last verse puts these all together. It says it's all about, all about these things are about love. It says it binds, love binds everything together. So the picture here is, is Paul is using, is, is they're stripping off old clothes and getting dressed as one who's not just read about or heard somebody else describe it, has experienced the mercy of God. They know they deserve punishment, but God has been patient. And for all they've done in defiance of him, God has done the most loving thing possible. He's put forward his own son to atone for and save them from sin. God has done something more loving than you will ever be able to do. And so we too, in following that, should put on love. It binds everything together. So of these garments, loves the belt of the new self. It holds everything together. It's possible to possess a few of the qualities listed above here, but not be truly loving. And that's why love must be the true measure of whether or not we've put on the new self. If you're compelled, controlled, it says in another part of scripture, by the love of Christ, these other things will come. If you love God, you will love people. You'll be less concerned with their faults and you'll be more concerned with seizing opportunities to bless them the way God has blessed you. And so on first reading, you you might think that this chapter is all about character. There's a lot of character qualities here, and that's not wrong. But more specifically, this chapter is about character in community. It's about a new identity created by the love of God, lived out among people who've also been given new identities, and all of us have been drawn together in him. So this is about life with Christ and life within Christ's church. And if you're reading this, if you really want to obey this, if you've been gripped by Christ and you want more of him, then you have to get close to other people. You can't show your compassion until you see the suffering of others up close. You have to even be able to see that sometimes the suffering of others is the result of their own poor choices, but you're going to choose to bless them anyway, even though they have made their own mess. You will grieve with them that they're in the mess. You'll enter into the suffering. You'll ask how you can help and bless because you'll realize that you've made poor decisions too. But God has given you a son. In the same way, you can't be kind 
until you've been close enough to someone else for them to say something or do something that's really unkind to you. And now you'll have to decide how you're going to return that. Humility and in, in, in meekness isn't practiced, isn't lived out by ignoring those you feel kind of smugly superior to. It's recognizing that the Holy Spirit has done just as much, if not more, work on you as he is doing in this other person, and both of you have a lot of work and a lot of distance to still cover. If you occasionally find it hard to love other people, praise God for that. Praise God for that. He's doing a work in you, and that is not just a way, or that is not just some speed bump to his work in your life. That is precisely the way that he is making you more like his son Jesus. He is putting people in your life who are difficult for you to love so that you will grow in loving them well. Because that's what he does. You're not a picnic, and neither am I for God to love. So praise God that he's doing that work in all of us. The point is, if you want to bear with one another and forgive one another, the only way to do that is by getting close to people. The church is the greatest incubator of godliness in the world because it both exposes our own need for grace and it just gives us an unending series of chances to share the grace of God with other people. If you were just to kind of stick to maybe your immediate family, maybe kind of a a self-selected social circle, you have a much more likely chance to surround yourself, because it's kind of your choice, with people that you agree with and act the way you prefer, share your thoughts. But if you widen that out to the church, you'll find all sorts of people around here who are very different from you. And if you say, I'm going to choose to love them anyway, I want to be excited about the possibilities of loving them, you will grow far more among a group like this than you will in some kind of self-selected smaller group that's kind of a lot like you are. We're all under the grace of God. We're all deeply forgiven by Christ. So we have opportunities to grow in that together. My hope and my prayer is that we would seize this. Seize this opportunity. This is a people right here. This is a place that we're in right now. This is a time that God has drawn us together for us to live as holy and beloved people and to put on a new self bound together by love. So may that be what we're known for. Pointing people to the love of Christ who loved us to the point of death and lives now, right now, so that we can too love other people. We might be saved forever, we might live in his love forever, and we might extend that grace and mercy to others. Let's pray together. God, may our church be known as those who love because you have first loved us. And where it is difficult to love others, 
May you strengthen us. Particularly, I, I pray with the reminder that we are often difficult to love, but you do it. And there's a lot of other people you've put in our lives to do it too. And so God, may we grow in grace for the sake of Christ. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.